So good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. I am um, I'm not Craig. Sorry if you expected Craig Johnson this morning. I'm not him. Um, he's teaching at Crossway this morning. Um, so he asked me to, to do his next passage. Um, so I'm sorry you're going to have to lift your eyes up just a little bit um, <laughs> this week since he's, um, yeah, anyways, he's half the man I am. Anyways, um, he's not here to defend himself, you so I can say that. That's right. Yeah, I do have more hair, too. Well, it's, again, everything's just higher. Anyways, uh, so let me, uh, let me pray for us real quick, and we'll get into this passage. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for this time that we're able to uh, just spend in your word, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the uh, the sermon we heard this morning, Lord, I pray that you would use the words that we hear to be effective to our lives, that we would apply them, um, that we would be humble to hear your word um, and love you enough to, to want to change and to put your word into action. Lord, I pray for this time now that you would just give me clarity to speak your word properly. Lord, I pray that uh, you would illumine our hearts and our minds to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'm in a different passage. Craig kind of stopped in the middle of a sentence last week, so he said, you know, let's we'll do something else. So we're in 2 Timothy this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to be doing verses 1 through 8 this morning. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, it says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So 2 Timothy has always been a, a favorite book of mine. I memorized it back in 2009 uh, with the uh, youth group. And um, at the time, I, I, I didn't appreciate it quite as much as I do today. But it, it really is just such a phenomenal book, and it's been, it's been with me for, for years now. And, and, and uh, for a long time, I've wanted to preach this very passage, so I was very pleased that Craig said, pick, pick, what, pick your own. And I said, yes, I know exactly what I'm going to. So I am fairly, not fairly, I, I am completely convinced that Second Timothy is a book that is completely vital for not only Timothy, but for the first century church we're in today. This book cannot be understated. The importance of this, that the... the the ministry application that this has, not only for pastors, although that's what we usually think of as a pastoral epistle, but for everybody in the church, these commands that he gives all throughout this book are applicable to everyone. They're, they're again, I, I think vital is just the word. It's essential for, for the church today. But to give some context, I think I really have to go back and, and kind of review the first three chapters of this book to kind of 
set the scene for where we are this morning. So Paul is writing to his son, Timothy, uh, his, his son in the faith, his spiritual son. He calls him that throughout the, uh, this book and other places. And most likely for the last time, this is generally ex- accepted as the last book that Paul ever wrote. Most likely Timothy is in Ephesus at this time. So he's, Paul is, is expecting to be martyred in Rome and he's writing back to Timothy who's in Ephesus we know about the church in Ephesus, so he's dealing with those issues that they're, they're going through. It's the last book that Paul wrote. And something that just strikes you when you read it, it's a very tender letter. It's very, very sweet, very personal. Probably the most personal book you, you, can, you can find. Philemon may be closer, but it's, so, it's, it's written to an individual, application to the church, but it is to his beloved son as he he describes it. So in chapter 1, he begins it to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This idea is that the book is to Timothy and his commands to Timothy as he's giving his last instructions. These are the things I want from you. In verses chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Again, just just so personal, so loving. I mean, if you received this letter, I'd be in tears if this was someone writing this to me. I just, I again, it's the personality to this is, is poignant. He says, longing to see, see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. And then verse 7, we kind of get into the more personal aspects where he speaks to him specifically and says, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and discipline. This points to kind of a theme throughout the book that it seems as though Timothy may have struggled with some sense of of a lack of boldness. It may have been a a character trait in his life that he just, he didn't quite have the boldness to to want to do the work. Maybe he wanted to do the work, but he didn't have the, maybe the discipline, but but boldness is really the, the good word there. So Timothy's encouraging him all throughout this letter in, in many different ways. And here's the first one. You, know, you, you haven't been given a spirit of timidity, power and love and of discipline. We see this also in 1 Timothy. The first time Paul writes to him, he tells him not to let anyone look down on you because of your youth. It's okay. You know what you know, right? You know the truth. Don't let anybody look down on you. Don't let anyone say you're not, you're not worthy of, of preaching the gospel properly. He's building them up. And he's building him up to preach the gospel. And in verse 8, it says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And then moving on to verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, retain the standard of sound words. This is the main command that he's telling him. He's saying, you have, you've received instruction from me. I've taught you over the years, both in these letters and me personally, my personal ministry to you. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And then moving on to chapter 2, he talks about the life of believers in general in the Lord. We are to be good soldiers. We are to be athletes complete, who complete according to the, compete, pardon, according to the rules. We are to be hardworking farmers. He gives all of those things. And then To Timothy, he says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So Paul is laying out, look, in all these different ways, here's some different examples, here's some different metaphors to use as a soldier, as a farmer, as all these things. Be worthy of the work that you're supposed to be doing. And then later in chapter 2, he talks about being a vessel of honor. 
to be used by Christ for his purposes, useful to the master. Because, and all, all of the commands in, in those first two chapters are because, in verse 3, evil men are coming. He says that, that evil men, in the last days, uh, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, right? All of these things. He's saying the world's getting worse, Timothy, right? People are not going to be good. People are not going to look righteous. People are not going to follow the teaching that I've given you. So because of these, because it's, the time's going to be evil, your character has to be right. Your character has to be pure. And then Timothy is told that he will suffer for the gospel. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says, but hold on to what you've been taught, right? Because he says in, in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse, I'm looking for it. Verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. So he's saying, look, you know these things. Hold on to what you've been taught, even though the times are going to be evil, because all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, or complete may be a better word, equipped for every good work. So he's saying, hold, hold on to this, this teaching that you have. Hold on to these things because the scripture, the scripture is inspired by God. All of this evil that you see in this world, all of these things, hold on to this godly character that I spent two chapters teaching you how to have godly character. Hold on to these things because all scripture is inspired by God. And then in chapter four, where we are this morning, this is really the, the really a sort of exclamation mark of the whole book. This is the culmination of he's saying, this is all that I've taught you, so this is my final command. I've given you all these things you should do, but this is the main one. And so in verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So we stop there. This charge is, is not, it, it's obviously stronger than just saying, hey, I think you should probably do this thing, right? <laughs> Paul uses the authority of Christ to back his charge, right? This is similar to if, if, if you know, I, I think back of when I was younger and my, one of my siblings came up and said, hey, clean your room. I'm like, well, who are you, right? But they said, hey, daddy said to clean your room. Oh, well, that has the authority behind it, right? That has the person behind it that has the authority to tell me to clean my room, right? Now, Paul had, I still didn't clean it most of the time. It's true. I knew I shouldn't have used that one. Anyways, it's uh, still your it is. Yeah, should have asked him to leave. <clears throat> That's okay. Steve can edit that part out. But he he backs his charge with the authority behind it, right? Now Paul had all authority to tell him what to do as an apostle of Christ. He could have just said, "Here's my command for you. I am your apostle. I am your father in the faith. Do this thing." But I think what it points to is the command he gives is so important that he says, my authority isn't even big enough. I need a higher charge. I need a higher authority to bring this to bear. This is not just asking for a favor. He is using the Lord Jesus not only as the authority, but as a witness to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. As God is watching your life and what you're doing, He's, he's here. He's watching you do this thing carefully. He says, 
and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. This living and the dead, this is points to two things. This is, first of all, the, the, the future judgment of Christ, right? Christ will sit on a throne of judgment. And he will judge the world. So he's saying, Timothy, because he's going to judge the world, do what's right. He's going to judge you in the end, right? But also, this is a, a present active command, or this uh, present active judging. The verb in there is a present active verb. It's very interesting. He's saying the one who is currently judging and will judge, right? This is God is watching you now. Christ is watching you now. And in a sense, what Paul is doing is he's saying, not only am I telling you you should do this, but it's like I've, all, I've already told God you're going to do it, all right? Now go do it because he's watching, right? That's, that's where this authority comes from. So this is, again, I think the strongest command. He has, has all sorts of commands throughout the book. This is the strongest command he can bring. And he says, I'm going to bring this to bear. And by his appearing and his kingdom, he brings the entire life of Christ to bear on this command. And he says, and by his future kingdom and his kingdom on earth, this is my command. Timothy is already being watched for how well he obeys this command. This is also a motivation that should Timothy do well, the righteous judge will award will have a reward for him, as we're going to see. So then this is, this is the, the, the calling, and, and he says his last command is preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. John Kitchen says the apostle called Timothy to live and minister now in the awareness that he did so in the presence of the one who one day will be unveiled and all his magnificence and glory. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. This isn't just simply a, here's the authority, you better do what I'm telling you, or else you're going to be judged later, right? Now, that's, that's maybe part of it. There's maybe a gentle, there is a judgment coming, right? But it's an encouragement. There's a judge is watching. The judge is watching what you do with your life. It should be a, a motivation to do well. To preach the word. It's something that in our, in our world... The world needs preaching the word more than anything else. Now, this is both preaching from, uh, you know, from a pulpit or, or in, as what we would think of as preaching. Timothy did a lot of that. But this is also has a connotation of, of simple evangelism. Preach the word. Not only in your church, not only to those who want to hear it, not only to those, because that's what we're going to see, right? Not only to those who want to hear it, but to everyone. Preach the word. Go out. Evangelize. And he says, in season and out of season. Now, when I memorized this back in 2009, my thought was in spring and in summer and in fall. That's not what he's saying here, right? He's, what he's saying is when it seems good and when it doesn't seem good. The words, when it's opportune and when it, you think it's inopportune. Again, this points to that, that maybe lack of boldness that Timothy maybe thought, maybe it's not time. The words here, the, the, the Greek words behind this is very interesting. It has to do with the the, the rhetoric uh, or the rhetorical um, debates that the Greek philosophers would have in that time, they had a, a, a way of instructing their philosophers to say, hey, you've got to choose the right moment in your, in your opponent's argument to crush them, right? You've got to wait until they say that right little thing, and you just, you've got to judge and say, I think this is where I should say it. This, this is where I bring that argument. And then the other, time, the other side of it is in, inopportune, right? Don't put your strongest argument when your opponent says this, right? When your opponent comes out with a strong point, don't put your strongest point right there. Wait till he's weak, right? That's, that's kind of the idea. But Paul is, is breaking all of those. 
He's saying it doesn't matter what your opponent's doing. It doesn't matter whether you think it's the right time or not. It doesn't matter whether you think this is best. Just preach the word all times. Whether you feel ready or not. Couldn't that be summarized with one word? Always. Always. Always, right? Always preaching the word. It's constant preaching the word. This is not like, so I, I work as an EMT. I work for an ambulance service here in Blount County. And there's a, there's a difference between what, what I am taught and the teaching of the word, right? Because my education in EMS, I'm taught how to do certain things to, to care for people who are sick and injured, do certain things. One of the things I think of is, is CPR. We're taught how to do CPR, how to resuscitate someone's heart. That's kind of the basics, the, the bread and butter of EMS, right? You know that. That's where you start. You get your CPR. But that changes over time. I don't know if y'all realize, but about a year ago, they changed the, the procedure and they said, if you're the only one doing CPR, it used to be you do 30 compressions in your two breaths, right? We hear that all, all the time, 30 compressions, two breaths. Well, now they've changed that and said, you know what? If you're the only one there, just do compressions. Because they learned from their mistakes and they said, this is changing. What, what Paul is telling Timothy, it's not changing. It's not changing with the times. He's not saying when, when, when it's this time, preach the word like this. When it's this time, maybe don't preach the word. Maybe change it a little bit. This word is the same. It's the same word. As, as uh, Eric read this morning, all men are like grass and all their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Right? This word is the same always. So why wait? Right? Why wait for a, for a time you think, ah, maybe they'll be more receptive later. Maybe they won't be here later. Preach the word. And then he gives some more commands. Reprove. It's a gentle correction. This is the idea of an un- unintentional sin. This is someone who's in the church. He's wanting to do right, but they're, they're, they've got some error. Right? This kind of points a picture of, of um, Priscilla and Aquila. They're, they're, they gently correct Apollos. Right? They say, you're, you're teaching well. There's a couple things we've got to fix. Right? We're going to reprove you a little bit. Right? And that's kind of on the middle of the, the, the spectrum, right? Rebuke, it's all the way over here. That's sin. That's outright sin. You're sinning against the church. Paul's telling Timothy, be quick to rebuke people. This is the man who knows what he's doing is wrong, and he's going to do it anyways. It's the first step of church discipline. This is a strong word, rebuke him. This is, this is really just almost like pushing someone back, right? They come up with their sin, you just push them back. Rebuke them. But then exhort this is encouragement. This is simply, hey, you're doing well. Do better. Continue to do well. Right? Not do better. Continue to do well, right? And these three commands are be done together. When you see someone in, in sin, you rebuke them, and yet you encourage them, hey, over here you're doing really well. And Timothy is supposed to do all of those. And again, I think this points to his, his lack of boldness sometimes because rebuking someone's hard. It's a tough thing because I don't want people not to like me. I like people liking me. I don't want to rebuke someone's sin and then they come back and say, well, what about your sin? Oh, well, now should they do that? Well, maybe not, right? But, <laughs> but it's a real possibility. They say, well, what about your sin? Well, you used to sin in this way too. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you're right. I don't want to rebuke people. That, that's a hard thing. But this command is, is what Paul tells us. You've got to rebuke You've got to encourage people. You've got to exhort people. I don't want to be seen as a people pleaser. That's my other side of things. I like that people like me, but I don't like to be seen as a people pleaser. So sometimes I, I don't feel like encouraging people because I'm like, ah, I'm just buttering them up at that point. Right? I'm just psst, waxing eloquent on their character. 
But no, it's important because the encouragement I get from other people, oh man, there is, there is so much joy when, when someone, especially someone who, who's a, an authority figure in the faith, a father figure in the faith, comes and says, hey, you're doing really well in this area. You're doing great. Continue to do, continue to do well. That strengthens me. And then all of these things, his preaching, his reproving, rebuking, and exhorting are all to be done in patience. This may be something that there are many pastors out there, many, many Christian-esque teachers who are quick to rebuke, or maybe they're just way too quick to exhort. And they're out there just telling people what they want to hear. Or they're, they're too quick to call out everybody's sin. But Paul says there's two things. First, you do it in patience and with the instruction that Timothy has already received from Paul. He's saying, you've received instruction from me. Use that instruction to teach, to reprove, to rebuke, and exhort. But why is this so important? I mean, you, you, we hear these commands and we think, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's great. But, I, you know, I, I hear the word. I'm, I'm not closed to the word. But Paul gives a reason. He says, for the time will come and they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul is speaking both specifically to the church in Ephesus. I think he is speaking to not necessarily the church, but the people in Ephesus, the city that Timothy is in. He's saying, hey, they're not necessarily always going to accept you. He's also talking about the world in general. (laughs) Do we not say that in the world we're in? People don't endure sound doctrine. But what Paul is really pointing to is he's talking about people who call themselves believers. He's saying they're going to say they're they're Christians, and yet they're going to just want to hear what they want to hear. So point of application is be careful if we're in a church that we only hear what we want to hear. Now, for most of us, we want to hear the full counsel of God preached from the pulpit, and that's what we hear. That's what we want to hear, and we hear that, right? But it's not always comfortable. I don't know about you guys, but some of those applications that Chris was bringing this morning, I'm like, ooh, because I, I am usually the quick one in the sermon to say, amen, Chris, that was great. And then he's like, oh, but what about you? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, about that, you know? He says, Make sure you're not leading someone else to stumble in idols. And I said, oh, amen. No, no, you. Make sure you're not doing it. Oh, I have to watch myself. I don't always want to hear that. William Mounts says, rather than hearing one correct teacher, they build a wall of teachers as if the sheer number of teachers will make them right. This is the idea of just, I don't want to hear truth. I don't want to hear your doctrine. I just want to hear my own thing. And so-and-so says I'm right, and this person says I'm right, and that book says I'm right, and this says I'm right, right? It's just building up arguments. I have a friend of mine who several years back, I was talk- he asked me, how's work? And I said, you know, it's great. Work on the ambulance, you know, a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff sometimes. And, and he says, yeah, you know, you know I, I've researched that a little bit, and I kind of know a thing or two. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's a good job. And then there was this point of, of something I said that I do, that he says, you know, when you're doing this, that's not really how you're supposed to do it. You're actually supposed to do it this way. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, hold on. So I, I graciously, I, I kind of allowed some patience to go, okay, wait, did I misunderstand what he's saying? Is he, and, and he was instructing me into my job. And he's saying, well, 
that's actually not how you do it. You're actually supposed to do it this way. And this, when I read this verse, this, this conversation came right back to mind because he said, because I read an article about it. I heard this doctor talk about it. They did a study that says this. They did, and what's he doing? He's just piling up people behind him that approve what he's saying. And I saw it on the internet. And I saw it on the internet. And Facebook <laughs> shared it, right? And it was on Facebook, so I know it's right. And he's building up these arguments. And I'm like, but, but the paramedics and EMTs who work in my field who do this every day, that's not what they teach. That's not what's in my textbook. That's not what the American, you know, uh, uh, Gosh, I can't even remember the board who writes the book. But anyways, the, the doctors that write the book, that's not really what they say, right? But he's, he doesn't care what I say. He wants to reject what I say because he thinks he's right. That's what Paul's talking about here. This is an intentional rejection. This isn't just leading away, right? This isn't someone coming into the church. Paul talks about this at other times, false teachers coming in and tricking people. Oh, I think this is right, right? He's not talking about that. He's saying people will come into your church, call themselves Christians, say they're believers, and then say, you know what? I don't want to hear what you're saying. I'm going to follow these people anyways because they agree with me. And I have this whole host of people that say I'm right. This is the natural outcome of poor theological teaching, truly, right? Don't teach the Bible properly. People believe they're Christians and they go after false teaching. As chapter 3 says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. These type of people, people who turn aside to myths, the, the, the imagery there is Paul says, avoid such men as these. He is calling on the entire church at large, the universal church of Christ, to avoid these men. This is a great punishment. This is, this is really a, a church discipline of a sense. If someone's walking out of your church and they don't want to they don't hold on to the gospel, avoid such men as these, don't associate with them. Instead of wanting to know Christ and wanting to know the truth of the gospel and wanting to serve the great Savior of our souls, there are those who want to live their sin-filled lives and call themselves Christians. I'm a Christian, and all these people say I can do these sins, so it's okay. It's fine. This is a horrific renunciation of clear Biblical teaching, not of finer theological points of doctrine, right? This isn't saying, well, you, you, uh, you, know, you, you believe in post-mill, and I'm, I'm a pre-mill, or I'm you know, vice versa. No, we're pre-mill. Anywho, you, know, you, you say, you, you believe in this little doctrine. I, don't, I just think that's a little off, right? You said this verse means that. I think it actually might have this connotation, right? That's not what he's saying here. This isn't someone who says, I, I have a couple differences. This is a rejection of the basic and foundational gospel of Christ. That's what they're rejecting, and yet they're saying they're believers. John Kitchen again says, the measure of good preaching can never ultimately be people's response to it. A higher standard is needed. You can teach eloquently. There are many wonderfully eloquent, powerful speakers in the world who speak nothing but lies. I hear those all the time, and that's most of what you hear on the internet. I'm sorry, right? Because those are the pastors who are promoting themselves on the internet for the most part. Absolutely. They make a lot of money. A lot of people follow them. And those teachers, in return, they say, I know I'm right because I've got all these people following me, right? Jeremiah 5, 31, the first part of that verse says, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. R. Kent Hughes, wonderful pastor, says this. He says, quote, Today, preachers fill sports arenas by telling people what they want to hear about their money, or politics, by entertaining them, 
by proclaiming bizarre doctrines that appeal to the curiosity. Whole intellectual careers are made and spent on demythologizing the Bible and reducing the words of Jesus to a few moralizing sound bites. The masses prefer myth to truth. Later on, and later on, Kent says, that is why you must sweat in the study and sweat in the pulpit. Studying the word is work. We must be diligent to preach the word properly, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and carefully adhering to the teaching we already have. We have clear teaching, not only in this church, but we have scripture. According to scripture, that's where our teaching comes from. doesn't matter what people want to hear. And he tells Timothy, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Being sober, this is, this is to think clearly about something. This is to consider every teaching you hear carefully. This is to be a proper Berean, right, in the faith. Bereans and Acts, I, I find it fascinating that they are commended not for rejecting heresy necessarily, right? Now they most likely did that. But they're commended for questioning Apostle Paul and saying, we got to make sure you're correct. We're going to search the scriptures before we take your word on it. That's what they're commended for. They're under good teaching. They have good teaching. But they're commended for thinking carefully through that. That's, that's being sober. Don't let your mind get, get distracted. Being sober against the heretical teaching you hear as Ephesians 4, 14, speaking to the same people that Timothy is with, Paul says, As a result, you are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Don't just be carried away by everything you hear. There are those people that, that I'm sure you may, someone may come to mind that you say they're a believer or, or maybe they claim to be a believer, but everything they hear just drags them somewhere else. They hear this doctrine, they go, I'm going to follow that guy. They hear something else, go, oh, wait, that sounds good too. They new, read the newest book, they read the, the newest uh, you know, blog, and they listen to the newest podcast and all these things. They say, oh, I'm going to go over here. Oh, I'm going to go over here. They don't think. They just say, oh, they're a pastor. They're a teacher. They went to such and such seminary. They're great. They went to master's. They're perfect, right? No, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Thinking carefully, this should be the, just the, the first thing that we're doing because this command to think properly, to be sober in all things, applies to the rest of these commands, to enduring hardship. Think properly while you're enduring hardship. This is to suffer persecution. Paul had told Timothy the chapter before, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to come. I'm promising you right now, you're going to suffer. Believers, we're going to suffer. Now, most likely, thankfully, most of us have not suffered in the, in the likeness of, of Paul. I think Paul is in Rome right now. The emperor is Nero. He's expected to be martyred. He was probably not a quick death. We don't know how Paul died. It probably wasn't an easy one. So he's saying, be sober in all things. Think carefully while you endure hardship because it's going to come. In 2 Timothy 2.3, he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Also, do the work of an evangelist. Think clearly as you do the work of an evangelist. This is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, Paul does not tell him, be an evangelist, right? There is an office of an evangelist. There is a, a or not office, pardon. There is a spiritual gifting of an evangelist. 
that Paul, that Paul is not commanding him, hey, you're now an evangelist, right? Paul doesn't have the authority to tell people, you now have the gift of evangelism. You have the gift of preaching, right? He, he can't divvy that up. What he's saying here is he's pointing back to what Christ says at the end of Matthew when he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? He's saying, do the work of an evangelist. Evangelize the people. Preach the gospel, right? This is another way of, of really saying preach the word. But he's saying, do the work of an evangelist. And finally, fulfill your ministry. This is everything you're doing, everything that Christ has called you to do, fulfill it. Now, this isn't simply do the work, right? I mean, I can go to work and my boss says, hey, I need you to fill out this paperwork. And I fill it out and I hand it to him and he's like, what is this? Like, it's sloppy. I can't even read these things. Half of these numbers are in the wrong boxes or, you know, whatever it might be. And I say, well, I did the work, right? This isn't what Paul's saying. He's saying, fulfill your ministry. That's not just saying finish it up. He's saying persevere. Fulfill it well. This has the idea of, of paying your debts. Fulfilling your ministry is, is like pay what you owe. Christ has commanded Timothy to do these things, to preach the word, to reprove, to rebuke. He's now, in a sense, in a spiritual debt. Paul is saying, pay that debt. You are supposed to do these things. Do them well. And again, this begs the question, why? Why are all these commands? And Paul's final words in these, in these verses are, are maybe just, it's, I think it's clearly the most introspective verses that Paul writes in, in, in his epistles. And it's, it's a very personal thing. In verse 6 he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. What strikes me about this is Paul is not saying, well, I'm leaving, so you better do it right. He's, he's not upset about this. He's not saying, yeah, some jerk over here is going to try to kill me. He's not saying, oh, Nero's this bad guy. He's going he's gonna to take my life away. The picture here, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The drink offering was a part of the Old Testament sacrifice, it also, I think, pointed to the, the, the Greek, um, the pagans in that day, they had the, the practice of in their ritual sacrifices, they would pour out a drink to their God, right? Ha, you know, as a, as a symbol of, well, they're not here, we're all drinking together, here's one for the God, right? That's, that's kind of the idea, but also it has this Old Testament sacrificial idea. My life is being poured out. That's part of the offering to God. After everything that's done, this was the last part of the offering process, as they offer the burnt offering, all these things, the, the cup offering or the drink offering was the last. Paul's whole life, the culmination, he's saying, is about to be burned as a sacrifice to God. I can look at my life. It's about to end, but it's a sacrifice because God's going to be pleased by what I offer up to him. My whole life as a culmination, I can look at and I can say, when this offering is offered to God, it's going to be good. It'll be a good offering to him. He says, in the time of my departure has come. This word for departure is the idea of, of sailing away, like a ship sailing away. And it, it, it's not necessarily a, an idea. The words aren't the idea of death, right? We know that Paul's speaking of death here, but the words are really like, this is just the next part of my journey. It's just the next adventure. I think if, if anyone in, in modern literature paints this well, it, it would be Tolkien in his, in his Lord of the Rings love the books, but at the end, there comes a point where the, the characters all know it's their time to go. They all get on a ship and they sail for the undying lands is what they call it. They sail for heaven. That's the idea that Paul's giving them. Time of my departure, I'm going to be leaving. This isn't, 
I'm going to die and it's going to be terrible and I'm going to go down into the pit and I, I, I'm, I'm destined for Hades and Sheol. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm just, I'm leaving this life. Such a sweet thing. William Hendrickson says, since this wine was gradually poured out, was an offering and was the final act of the entire sacrificial ceremony, it pictured most adequately the gradual ebbing away of Paul's life. The fact that he was presenting this life to God as an offering and the idea that while he viewed, he viewed his entire career of faith as a living sacrifice, he looked upon the present stage of this career as being the final act of sacrifice. Which leads to his next point when he, he gives three things to talk about his life. On, on first glance, this seems very boastful of Paul to say, I've done great, I've done this. But it's not what it is. Following the theme of this book, it's encouragement to Timothy. He's saying, I want to encourage you. I've fought the good fight. This is the idea that he's given elsewhere that he says, follow after me as I follow after Christ. I have fought the good fight. This fighting a good fight, it's a military idea. We're in a spiritual battle against sin, against the devil, and, and Paul has fought it well. The fight is called good, not because... It's it, the, the sin is good, not because the enemy is good, right? But because the nature of the thing we are fighting, right? We are fighting something wrong, but the fight is good. It's a good fight that he's fighting. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. It's an athletic me- metaphor. He has not only competed, but competed according to the rules. As he says in chapter 2, verse 5, an athlete needs to be, compete according to the rules. In fact, these two affirmations of Paul's life, when he says, I fought the good fight and I have finished the course, it points to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when he says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So he's saying, that, that command that I've said, Hey, if you're a soldier, you've got to please the Lord properly. I've done that. I fought that good fight. And in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Also, if anyone competes as an athlete... He does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Paul's not saying, I've just gotten through life. I've just, I've done everything I'm supposed to. No, he says, I've done it well. I finished the course. You can't go in a race course and they say, hey, you've got to go from here to there to this point to the, and, then, and then back. And you go, all right, I'm going to go over here, cut through the middle, and then finish right there. Right? You, you can't take those shortcuts. You've got to compete according to the rules. You can't run along and trip people on your way. Right? You can't take it and go, oh, this is a baton race. I'm just going to throw the baton to the next guy who's 20 yards away and get that extra. Right? He, he's competing according to the rules. He's saying, not only have I completed the course, I've done it well. I've done it properly. Finally, he says, I have kept the faith. This word for kept has the idea of guarding. I've guarded the faith. I have guarded well the truths that God has given me. He has endured hardship and suffered for the sake of the gospel. Acts 20, 24 says, but I do not consider my life of any account. This is Paul speaking. Of any account is dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And this is, this is what it is. This is his ministry to testify solemnly of the gospel, the grace of God. It's a wonderful encouragement to Timothy as he looks towards his life because we're, we're thinking the first century church, most of the apostles are dying off. John is, is soon to come as the, as the last one in coming years. And all of the people who have been with Christ and heard his teaching specifically, they're, they're not going to be around. 
And so Timothy, and Paul's giving him these last commands and saying, Timothy, hold on to these truths. Do these things because I'm not going to be here. I'm leaving. But this last verse, it, I get the idea that, that Paul's almost, it's like he's forget, forgotten he's even writing. He's just he's looking to the future. It says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Which the, righteous, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's laid up for me, means that Christ is, that, uh, I'm sorry, means that the, the crown is already there. It's already being held. Paul doesn't have to strive for the last few moments. Oh, I really hope I do well to, maybe I'll get into heaven, right? This, this isn't Islam. He's not saying, I, I hope I finish this right because I, I want that crown. It's already there. The basis of his salvation and the righteousness of Christ, Christ is holding that reward secure. There's a thing that will be given to Paul. He already knows that. It's just waiting for him to come. The crown of righteousness has two different possible applications. It could either be the crown which imparts righteousness, right? To give you this crown means you now have righteousness. Or it could be, I'm giving you this crown because of your righteousness, right? There's two sides of that. And from my study, it seems that it's a little bit of both application being placed here. Paul speaks elsewhere of his own personal righteousness. That He says, through Christ, I have the ability to please him. And through my righteous acts and my righteous deeds, I am counted as righteous because of the blood of Christ. And yet, in another sense, I, I'm not fully righteous. We're not fully sinless. We don't have that righteousness of Christ that, that does away with our sinful nature. That's what we look forward to. And there's both things there. This the crown of righteousness is a reward for a righteous life and also the gift of eternal righteousness. The reward at the end of the race is given because of the actions of the runner, right? If I run a race, I deserve that crown. I deserve the prize, the trophy that's there. I deserve that. That's what I'm supposed to get, right? But this is Christ and his this is where the analogy breaks down because Christ, even before the race, he says, you're going to get that prize, by the way, <laughs> right? We can run that race. It's both of those. But not only to Paul, and this is the encouragement to Timothy and to everyone who comes after him, he says, but not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Everyone who loves the Lord and his appearing will receive the same crown of righteousness. Looking ahead, Paul has motivation for living the last few days of his life in righteousness and sinlessness. Timothy has an equal motivation to live the rest of his life, to do these commands, to preach the word, because it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard to approve, to rebuke, to exhort, all of these things, to, to be sober-minded, to endure hardship, to do the work of the evangelist. All of these commands, he says, do all of these things. And really, the three chapters before this, do all of these things, because not only am I receiving a crown, Everyone who's loved is appearing. This is a motivation for Timothy to live righteously. There will be a reward in heaven given by Christ, the righteous judge. There we see it again. He is the righteous judge who judges according to our acts. Christ's righteousness is pointed out here as the judge because you need to know this isn't just an arbitrary person just handing out crowns at the end of life. This isn't someone just going, hey, everybody gets a crown, right? Was the thing on Oprah where it just gives cars to everybody? Oh, you get a car and you get a car. No, this isn't just handing out to everybody. Christ is a righteous judge. He's judged our actions and our lives and our behavior. And our righteousness 
based on his blood to know who gets the crown. Paul is urging Timothy to preach the word different, diligently and without compromise. Men will not endure it someday. Timothy is to be sober, endure hardship, evangelize, and fulfill his ministry because Paul will not be here to do it. Paul is leaving this word for Timothy and for us. And so my final, my application for you guys is, is how are we doing with this? I know I, I struggle many times to share the gospel as I should. When a brother in Christ, especially in a church context, comes and says, hey, I'm, I'm doing this thing. And I'm like, oh, that's probably not right, but I don't know if I really want to call him out on that. I got to be doing that. Do I endure hardship properly? As, as Peter says in 1 Peter, if you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Am I enduring hardship properly? Am I grumbling and complaining in it? Am I fulfilling the work that Christ has given me to do? Am I fulfilling my ministry? Am I guarding the word properly? It's really just, again, I, I'm just struck by the, the gentle tenderness that Paul has here. This is an encouragement for Timothy, but really for us as a church, this should be what our lives at the end want to look like. This is what I want to be able to say. Because quite frankly, I say this with as much gentleness, there are many people in this church who won't be here when I'm, I'm still here. In 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I'll probably still be here. My parents may not be here. Sorry to remind you of that. <laughs> Pastor Chris probably won't be here. Craig won't be here by the end of my life. All of these men in my life who have shown me what righteousness is, they won't be here. So I can't rely on them. I can't just say, I'm just going to follow Chris and whatever he does, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to follow Craig because, you know, I know he's doing well. No, there is some good to that. Follow Chris as he follows after Christ, right? In those same ways. But he's not going to be here. So for me, as someone who is relatively young, don't ask my wife about that. She's not going to say I'm young. It's relatively young in the church. For me, I think they're not going to be here forever. I've got to be ready to do these things. But also at the same time, I'm going to be in the place of Paul someday. Probably not for a while. Someday I'm going to be looking back at my life. First of all, am I going to be able to tell those who are younger to my children, my grandchildren, the younger people in the church, am I going to be able to tell those to, to that day's Timothys, I've done well. Follow after my steps. Am I going to be able to tell them, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I need to make sure that I can do that as well. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much um, just for your word, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the opportunities that we have to, to preach your word to un unbelievers, to believers among us to reprove each other, to rebuke, and to exhort one another, Lord. I pray that, that you would just help us to do that better. Lord, that because of the love we have for you, because of the desire we have to guard your word properly, Lord, that we would dispense your word, that we would be good stewards of it, Lord. Lord, that at the end of my life, I may look towards the crown of righteousness that you have for me, Lord and truly express that I have fought the good fight, finished the course, and I have kept the faith. Lord, help us to do that now. Lord, help us even today as we go from this place, as we go about our day, as we go through our, our various activities, Lord, that you would 
Let us live a life in light of the crown of righteousness we have, in light of what we want our life to look like, that it would reflect you and glorify you in the end. In Jesus' name, amen.